Well, let's turn together to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. This morning we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 24. Daniel 2, 1 to 24. Verse 1. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to the king to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and was very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. 
He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we have requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may your name indeed be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power do belong to you. And I pray that this morning, Lord, you would fill us afresh with the knowledge of who you are. Fill us afresh with wonder Fill our mouths with praise as we reflect now upon what you have done with with Daniel in the past, revealing who you are today. Lord, I pray that you would draw all of our minds and all of our hearts to you now as we turn to your word, as we turn to that that gives us life and that which we live by. Your word. Speak to us, we pray, and be glorified, we pray, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, how many of you have heard this expression? Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) Have you ever heard that expression before? Well, the expression was spoken by the astronaut James Lovell of the Apollo 13 mission. Maybe you knew that. In 1970, and he spoke that miles and miles and miles above the Earth in space. And if you're familiar with the story, uh, the Americans had landed on the moon the year before. I believe it was 69, wasn't it? And uh, so Apollo 13, they sent another uh, shuttle up to the moon. They wanted to land this uh, astronauts again on the moon. And James Lovell was one of the crew. And after two days in space, after their launch, an oxygen tank exploded on the shuttle. Can you imagine being in space, uh, miles and miles and miles away from Earth, and all of a sudden uh, your oxygen tank explodes? How many of you would like to be in a situation like that? And actually, James Lovell was remarkably calm. You can listen to the audio uh, recording of that. He says, Houston, we have a problem, you know? And uh, there's a film about this called Apollo 13. If you've, if you've not seen it, it's a really good film. It captures the heroic effort of the crew and the flight controllers on the ground who worked tirelessly to solve that problem and to bring those astronauts home. And they succeeded, remarkably. you got these guys way in space in a damaged shuttle and they managed to get them home. And many people on Earth at that time thought... There's, there's really no way that these guys are coming home. How, how on earth are we going to get them home? They're going to die. But those in flight control, they worked out something that they could do. They said, no, we're not going to give up here. I, I think we can work out a way to get them home. And they did it. 
And it's a remarkable story. But there are problems that we face in life that can't be solved with human ingenuity, right? Not all of our problems can be solved like the Apollo 13 mission. Not all of our problems um, you know, look, look really bad, but there's always a way for us to figure it out what we can do in order to get out of those problems, right? Sometimes when you're playing chess, this is a simple analogy, you just have to resign. Because you look at the board and you say, you know, there's no way that I can win this game. And you knock your king over and you, you lose hope that you can win and you give up. Because there's nothing you can, you can't with your ingenuity say, I think there might be a way here. Sometimes there just isn't. And a more serious analogy, um, consider yourself recently in the Philippines when that enormous storm came through. And this is a problem, right? Oh no, and by all appearances I'm going to lose my home. I'm going to lose my possessions. I might even lose my life. And there's really nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do. There's no human resources. There's no human ingenuity that can get me out of this natural disaster. Or think about death. Death is also a problem. Uh, People don't want other people to die, typically, when they love them. And here's a problem. My loved one is dying. And I don't want them to die. Is there anything you can do about that, humanly speaking? Can you do like the Apollo 13 and say, I know it looks hopeless, but we're going to figure something out. We're going to do it. All human resources are gone, and the only thing you've got to turn to is God. There are situations where the only place you can turn is God. In Mark chapter 5, Jairus has a daughter who is sick. He's a, a ruler in the synagogue. And the story in Mark chapter 5 is he comes to Jesus and says, my daughter is on her, he's, she's sick, she's on her deathbed, she's dying, please come and heal her. Uh, and Jesus agrees. And so Jesus is making his way there. And on their way there, Jairus' daughter dies. And when Jairus' daughter dies, they come and report this to Jairus and Jesus as they're coming. And what they say to Jesus is, why do you trouble him any longer? She's dead. Don't trouble Jesus any longer. There's, there's nothing more that can be done. And what does Jesus say to Jairus at that moment? Right when they said, don't trouble anymore, there's no hope. He says, only believe. Don't despair, Jairus. Because yes, humanly speaking, there's nothing we can do. It's true. There is no hope here with human resources. But there is hope with God. And if you believe all things are possible, um, then there's hope with God. And so you know the story. Jesus goes and he does raise her from the dead. Now, in our reading this morning, we have a problem, don't we? And it's a very, very serious problem and lives are at stake in this problem. And we find in our, in our reading this morning two very different responses to this problem. And this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at four things this morning. One, we're going to examine the problem and what kind it is. If it's a, if it's a kind of problem that can be solved with human resources or not. We're going to look at the pagan response, secondly, to the problem. And we're going to look at the Israelite response to the problem. And then lastly, we'll apply this to the gospel of Christ. So first, the problem. 
the problem. Now, last chapter introduced us to the main characters of the book of Daniel. We, we, we learned about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. These are the two main characters of the book of Daniel. There are other characters also, but these are the two main characters. And chapter 1 introduces us to them and explains their positions, explains who they are, what, what they are. Uh, Daniel, of course, is a captive from Israel who's been invited into the court of the king. Nebuchadnezzar is the uh, king of Babylon. He was conquering the, the world at that time. And what we read about in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, is that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. And so last week we saw how God is sovereign over the nations and that whatever happens in the world, kings rising, kings falling, nations extending their borders and conquering other nations, that is God's handiwork. That is God's sovereignty. That is God not just happenstance. And we're supposed to interpret history this way. Very crucial in the book of Daniel, this concept. Daniel's faith in God is seen in chapter 1. Not his strength. We're not to read chapter 1 and think, what a great guy Daniel is. He's so strong. He's got so much willpower. I wish I had willpower like that. I wish I had resolve like that. The Bible would say to you, well, if you don't have the, the will or the resolve to do it, the problem is you just don't have the faith. Because it's, it's not that we're strong in and of ourselves to face trials and crises. It's, the question is, what do you believe? In whom do you believe? And it's, this, is a, this is an illustration of Daniel's faith in God. When everything else looked hopeless, when everything looked helpless, Daniel believed the scriptures Daniel believed the word of God that, no, this isn't happenstance. This isn't a sign that God is absent. This isn't a sign that there's no hope. God is judging us just like he promised he would. But since God is in the business of fulfilling his promises, not only in judgment, therefore he's going to preserve Israel. Therefore, this is not going to be the end of my nation. This is not the end of the Jews. And so this is an illustration of the gospel. When God is judging Israel for their sins and all looks hopeless, Daniel believes God's word and his promise and he knew Israel would not perish and Israel would make it through. He had faith in God's promise and in God's power to perform his promise and he wasn't trusting in Israel's righteousness. Right? He wasn't saying, Israel's going to get through this because Israel is so righteous. But Israel's going to get through this because God has made this promise and he's powerful and he's in control and therefore Daniel believed, and we find out at the end of this chapter that he outlives the Babylonian Empire. He outlives this enormous empire. So Daniel is introduced in chapter 1. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 2. We turn now to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is a fascinating individual as we shall see. And I think probably most of us don't realize how fascinating Nebuchadnezzar really is. Is I hope you see this morning as we look at his, his thought processes and what he's about that you'll agree that this is quite the individual. Undoubtedly, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful military leader. Uh, he was a conqueror and he has many military exploits we can talk about. But most historians agree that Nebuchadnezzar was really not primarily a military leader. That wasn't really his thing. His thing was empire building and he was a builder he loved construction. He loved building impressive things. 
and showing off the glory of his empire. That was what he was really into. He was a builder. He wanted to build the glory of Babylon and to preserve it forever. He wanted to build a nation that would never go away. And of course, there's lots of famous things that he built. Uh, You can look online and type in the famous things Nebuchadnezzar has built. You've probably heard of either the Ishtar Gate or the Hanging Gardens, which is basically a huge artificial mountain that he built for his wife who missed mountains. Um, because Babylon is, everything is flat in Babylon. His wife's from Persia. And, I miss mountains. Okay, let's build a mountain. <laughs> let's build it artificial too, so it's really cool. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar was extremely devout. He was a devout and religious man toward his God. We see evidence of this in Daniel where he, he conquers other nations' gods, so he thinks, and he takes the vessels that are in their house which show their glory and their beauty and their power, and he takes it and puts it into the house of his gods, as we saw in chapter 1. We saw how he renamed the Jews. You know, all your names, are, your, your, your names honor your God. Your God's defeated. Your God is no good. But our God is giving us victory. Our God will last forever. And so they changed the names of uh, the Jewish names to Babylonian heathen names. Uh, in archaeology, when we've, uh, the, the archaeologists have done uh, digs and things in the Babylonian area, and they find these uh, sites that, that are dating from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and I think I heard that almost every brick, or many of the bricks Nebuchadnezzar used, had engravings on them that were engravings to his God, basically adoring and worshipping his God. So he's a devout man. He's conquering. He's building. Life is good. The future is bright for Nebuchadnezzar. And all of a sudden, he starts having nightmares. So here's here's the oddity of the situation. He's on the top of the world. He's doing everything right in his mind. And in verse 1, we see Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar begins being troubled by dreams greatly troubled by dreams. And as we're going to see, as we read on in this chapter next week, he has this dream of a statue that gets destroyed, right? And the, the way that it's described in, later on, it's a f- very scary dream. It's not, oh, that's a pretty statue. Hey, where'd it go? It, this is a really scary dream. The, sta- the, the dream freaks him out. And he, he takes this as a dream from the gods because this is not a typical dream. The Hebrew literally says that his spirit is struck, kind of like a gong or a bell. Like, boom, and his spirit. He's just really uh, shaken to the depths, basically, is what that means. Have you ever been shaken to the depths? Maybe you haven't. But Nebuchadnezzar was shaken to the depths. This was not a typical dream where you get up in the morning and you think, I think I dreamed last night. Yeah, what was that about? You know, and then you're trying to remember what it was, and it usually doesn't make any sense, right? Um, dreams are a common way that God has spoken to men as far back as the book of Genesis. Um, you can see in the book of Genesis, there are dreams that God gives to men, both heathen and those who believe in him. And even in our own contemporary day, people have dreams and we often hear about the many dreams that Muslims are having. Um, 
at this time, right? Many Muslims are converting because of dreams God is giving them about Jesus. There's been much psychological study of dreams. Obviously, not all dreams are from God. You would go crazy if you thought that. If every dream you tried to interpret from God, you would go crazy. And there's a lot of science behind dreams, why they happen. But God can speak to a man or a woman when they are asleep and fill their mind with a night vision. And when you wake, I believe that if you have a dream from God, you're going to get up in the morning and you're going to know you did. Or you're going to wake up and you're going to know you did. Because you'll be, you'll be shaken to your core. God won't um, let you let that slip away. So this one was from the gods, or God, but he thought it was from the gods. And it was foreboding, it was scary, and Nebuchadnezzar knew instinctively that it was a bad sign and a bad omen about his empire. It was a bad dream, and he discerned in this dream, something bad's coming my way about my, for my empire. But why? Wasn't his God for him? Wasn't Nebuchadnezzar doing everything right? Hadn't he been victorious? Weren't the gods pleased? Wasn't he giving great honor to the gods? So why would he, if he's doing everything right, have these nightmares? And this is what is troubling Nebuchadnezzar so much about the dream. So in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. He's so troubled by this dream that he calls in not just one category of servants, but basically all of his, uh, the Babylonian priests and sorcerers and magicians and conjurers. These are the conjurers. These are the professional priests in Babylon who are trained to interpret omens and signs and to advise rulers in decision-making so as to avoid misfortune. Basically, these guys would say, yeah, we are priests of the gods. We've got a connection with the gods. We know how to interpret the gods' messages and help steer the nation in the right way. And these priests had a central role in Babylonian religious and political life. Uh, The commentator John Goldengay says this about them, about this verse Verse 2. The very variety of those he summoned underlies the anxiety built into the situation. So we're supposed to feel the anxiety in the situation by the variety of the people he calls. As well as the mockery with which the readers are invited to view the multiplicity of the Babylonians' toilsome attempts to control their destiny. So you're supposed to see in this the anxiety, but also the, that the, the author is basically uh, mocking as well. Look, he brings them all. He brings all his best guys. And watch what happens. Now look at verse 3 and 4. The, the magicians who come are confident. They've done this before many, many times. This is going to be a routine textbook uh, session with the king. He's going to tell them the dream and they're going to tell him the interpretation. They even had books written on how to interpret dreams. So the, the magicians show up that night, if they were summoned in the middle of the night or the morning, whatever, they show up confident. And here's what they say, O king, live forever. That's a typical Babylonian statement of respect to the king. But I think in just a moment, they're going to wish that's not true. 
And Nebuchadnezzar stuns them in verse 5 and 6. The king replied to the Chaldeans. He starts by saying this, My commandment that I'm about to give you is firm. I'm not going to budge on this. You need to tell me not only the interpretation of my dream, but you need to tell me what my dream is. You need to tell me what I dreamed, and then you need to tell me the interpretation of the dream. And if you don't, I'm going to rip you limb from limb and make your houses a rubbish heap. That's what's going to happen here, guys. And the command is firm. Okay, they just went in there, this is going to be textbook, this is going to be, and all of a sudden, uh (laughs) uh-oh. Suddenly, what was routine has become perilous. That happens in life sometimes, doesn't it? You get up in the morning, it's going to be a routine day, something changes. Now, some Bible translations give the impression that Nebuchadnezzar forgot the dream. Have you ever thought that or... Did you get that impression? The King James Bible gives that impression because it says the, the thing is gone from me, I think the King James says. But really that's not what happened. Nebuchadnezzar did not forget the dream. The Hebrew means it's firm. The thing that I, I'm speaking to you is unchangeable and firm. And it's this firmness that creates the problem. If he wasn't firm on it, then it wouldn't be any problem, right? Tell me the dream and the interpretation. We can't, O king. Uh, okay, well, then just tell me the interpretation. It's the firmness of this commandment that's the central point here that's making the problem. And the king has power to execute these men. The king is the most powerful man on earth. What he says is going to happen. There's nothing that these guys can do to get out of it. He's got all the armies of Babylon at his disposal to kill all these guys. This is no idle threat. The Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Darius I actually did slaughter his wise men. So this isn't just some mythological, biblical story. Uh, This is true history. Nebuchadnezzar is not giving an idle threat at all. These men's lives are in danger. The question is, why would Nebuchadnezzar require this? You ever thought about it? We often just read the story and say, okay, he tells them to tell the dream, but why would he do that? It seems unreasonable, doesn't it? It seems unfair. What do you mean? I'm going to kill you and tear you limb from limb if you don't tell me what I dreamed. But this, brothers and sisters, is what makes Nebuchadnezzar as an individual so very fascinating. Nebuchadnezzar is so troubled by his dream, and he's convinced that it's from the gods, that he wants to be absolutely sure that he knows what the dream is about. He wants to be sure that the interpretation that these guys give him is actually what the gods are trying or wanting to say to him. Because this is so important. This isn't just some little thing. He sees his empire is in danger. There's something bad coming his way. And he wants to be absolutely sure he knows what's going on. And what this reveals is that Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a lot of confidence in his magician's ability to actually interpret dreams. He was suspicious of them. And usually what happens is, as long as there's no real crisis, religious people just kind of stuff their suspicions. 
right? As long as there's no crisis, I believe in these guys. Yeah, they're my priests. They tell me what to do and it's all good. And nothing is too serious. But when something suddenly becomes a crisis, when something is now really serious, weighing on Nebuchadnezzar, he really wants to know. He really needs to know the truth. It's not that he's completely doubting these guys. It's not that he's saying, I I really don't believe you have the power to tell me my dream. I just want to be sure. I I, want to give you an opportunity to prove yourselves that you really are in touch with the gods. You guys claim connection with the gods. Therefore, it should be easy. If God gave this dream and you're in connection with him as his priest, it shouldn't be that difficult. If you can do this interpretation, then you should be able to know what I dreamed. It's something that happened in the past. It should be floating around in the stratosphere somewhere. You guys should be able to do this if you really are what you claim to be. And this is the emphasis, as you'll see in the text, is he wants to know the interpretation. Even Daniel and Daniel himself goes to the king later and says, I will give you the interpretation. It's interesting, he doesn't say, I'll give you the dream and the interpretation. It's implied, when he says, I will give you the interpretation, it's implied he's going to give the dream. I'm going to give you the real interpretation. I'm going to give you the dream. You're going to know it's from God. Now look at verse 7. How do the magicians respond to this commandment? Verse 7. They just repeat what they said before. Let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. Can you imagine how intense the atmosphere must have been there? (laughs) This just makes Nebuchadnezzar more angry because now he's picking up that his wise men cannot actually deliver. Look what he says in verse 8 and 9. I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you don't make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, that's death. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream. He gives him another option, another chance here. Tell me the dream that I may know. Here it is. Tell me the dream so that I may know that you can declare its interpretation. If you tell me the dream, I'll know. Golden Gay says this, they are seeking to evade facing a challenge to show whether they have a supranormal knowledge by revealing what the actual dream was. This is what the magicians want to avoid. They want to avoid a test or a challenge that's going to put them on the spot to show whether they actually do have a supernatural insight and wisdom and knowledge. Nebuchadnezzar knows, if he doesn't, he knows now, he's getting the clue, that if I tell you the dream, you're going to give me something that's lying and corrupt. You're going to give me something that's not real. And you're just going to appease me until things change. This shows how seriously he took the dream and how much he wanted to know what it meant. The magicians are in really big trouble. This is a major, major problem. The most powerful man in the world has given a firm commandment that if you don't do this supernatural thing, then I'm going to tear you limb from limb. There's only one decree for them if they fail this. All of them will die. This is the problem that we have in our reading. They tried the human ingenuity, didn't they? 
just tell us the dream. It's just, they kept saying, tell us the dream. Well, come on. They're trying to stall Nebuchadnezzar. But this problem is of the kind that requires supernatural intervention. This is a problem where there is no human resources at all. And if you don't get an answer from God, you will perish. That's the problem. Let's look now at the second thing, the pagan response to a problem like this. Verse 10 through 13. The pagan response. Now, by pagan, I'm just meaning a person who doesn't know the true God. What is the pagan response to a problem like this where all human resources are gone, that there is nothing a person can do? Where do they turn? Where do they go? Verse 10 and 11. And this really is one of the most remarkable passages. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, And you can kind of hear the despair here in their voices. There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter to the king. And no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There is no one else who could declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Notice all the negatives in these two verses, right? There's not a man on earth. No king asks for this. Uh, there's no one can declare this to you except for the gods, but there are nowheres to be found, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's essentially what they're saying. Negative, 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 negative. Wow, what a statement. This is basically saying there is no place to turn When a supernatural solution is needed, there is none. That is what they're saying. There's not a man on earth who can know this. But that's precisely the point of the problem. Nebuchadnezzar wants to hear from the gods, right? He doesn't want to hear from man. God's given me a dream and I want to know what God's interpretation is. I'm not asking you because I'm asking you as a man to tell me the dream. You claim to have connection with God. Tell me what God says. That's precisely his point. He's exposing them. Why didn't they pray? Why didn't the magician say, okay, like Daniel did, okay, give me, just, give me an evening and we'll go talk to the gods. We'll go pray. We'll go seek the gods of heaven. Why didn't they do that? Why? Because they really don't believe that God would answer them. They don't believe the gods can do anything. Isn't that fascinating? You know, if they really believed that the gods that they served could actually save them in this situation, they would have hope. They would have something they could do, and they didn't. And brothers and sisters, this is one of the most powerful revelations of the pagan mind, the pagan man, the pagan hope, that people, even today, who claim to believe in God or gods other than the true God, they talk big when there's no crisis, right? I believe in God. I'm a faithful man. Pray every night, this, that, and the other. Go to church. Go to mosque. Go to synagogue, whatever. And when cr- there's no crisis, no big deal. But when it, comes, when it comes down where the rubber meets the road, where there's crisis, where you need God, God is not in the... 
uh, there's no option or alternative to turn to God in a crisis for people who don't know the true and the living God. They don't turn to Him. They don't reason with God in the picture. And we're going to see this over and over as we go on in Daniel. But there's only one thing we can do, and that's what the human being can accomplish. And if the human being can't accomplish it, then there's nothing we can do. Don't you believe in God? Well, yeah, I do, but that's not realistic, and it's not going to work. I, what is your faith in God like? Is your faith in God like that when and everything's fine and dandy, you talk that you believe in God, you do this about God, or do you actually believe that God is real and you can trust Him, you can turn to Him in times of crisis, and, and you don't just consider everything from a human and natural perspective. You don't just consider what humans can do or what's, what can naturally happen, but you do, in fact, take into account what God can do. Such is the pagan mind. There's not a man who can tell you this. There's no great king who has ever asked anything like this. What a fascinating statement. That's a statement that there's never been a king who's asked the priests to do anything supernatural. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Nothing like this. Because why? Why don't the kings ever ask people to do that? Why don't the great kings ever ask people to do that? Because they know it can't be done. They know it can't be done, so they don't put it on their priests to do it because even the great kings who claim to believe in the gods and these things, they don't turn to the gods, they don't turn to the supernatural when things actually are in crisis. In order for us to defeat that nation over there, we're going to need a really big army. Oh, we defeated them. Glory to God. But if we don't have the big army, we're not going to trust in Bel and Nebo to deliver them in those situations. The gods don't do anything. The gods aren't real. They're story gods. Look at verse 11 for another fascinating statement here. The only ones who know the answer are the gods. And he says, they say this in verse 11, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. The gods don't, don't dwell with men. What a statement for these priests to make, eh? You know, the gods could help us if they were around, but they're really not around, king. They can't help us. They aren't here with us. We cannot turn to them in time of need. What an amazing admission. Golden Gay says this, In the conversation between kings and sages, deity is only mentioned in order to be excluded from consideration. Isn't that interesting? They bring up they bring up the gods here, but they only bring them up to exclude them from the situation. And this is precisely what Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who, who Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear from, was the gods. So this is the true view of pagans then and now. All is a facade until crisis. The fact is, there are no other gods besides the true and living God. And if you don't know Him, it's all a facade. You will not turn to those gods in time of crisis. And this, brothers and sisters, is precisely, is exactly the challenge of Isaiah 41. And I mentioned Isaiah 41 in the past 
But Isaiah 41 is God's chosen apologetic, right? Where God says, if you are really God's, then do something. If you're really God's, tell us something that we couldn't know with human ingenuity. If you're really God's, tell us the past, tell us the future, tell us something. Show that you can do something supernatural. This is God's chosen apologetic and contest and challenge with false gods. In fact, in Isaiah 46 and 47, as you go on in Isaiah, God directly addresses the Babylonian magicians in 46 and 47. He directly addresses the Babylonian gods and the Babylonian magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans. And he says, your gods are nothing. Your gods can do nothing. Your gods will be carried away on donkeys sideways. They can't deliver themselves. And all your magicians and all your boasted uh, Uh, wisdom and ability, will all be shown to be nothing. So what Isaiah was prophesying is happening. And the challenge is occurring. And the gods are failing. And this is actually what Isaiah 40 to 66, the second half of Isaiah, is really all about. And Daniel is deeply rooted and steeped in Isaiah 40 through 66. All the themes of the second half of Isaiah are here in Daniel, the contest between God and false gods. The failure of the magicians, the ability of the true God to tell the past as well as the future, the, the ability of the true God to know dark things. Isaiah talks about that, right? I am the true and living God um, who created heaven and earth. There is none like me. I am the true one that lives. I am the Savior. There is no God besides me. I know the dark things. I know the hidden things. I declare the things that no one else can know. All other gods will be proved to be nothing. All that put their trust in divination and false gods will be ashamed, Isaiah says. And all who trust in God will be honored. And this is what Daniel is all about. Yahweh versus the gods. And the gods prove themselves to be nothing. And Yahweh proves himself to be the true God who delivers his people. Nebuchadnezzar in verse 12 and 13 is not appeased by this at all. He doesn't say, you know what, you're right, I am being unfair and unreasonable. He orders the destruction of these liars. He's furious. He orders them to be destroyed We might think that's harsh and unfair. They're only men. They can't be expected to know those things. But that's precisely the point. They claim to be diviners. They claim to have connections with the gods. And Nebuchadnezzar sees through the sham and he's angry and he wants them to be destroyed. What a fascinating character Nebuchadnezzar is. Thirdly, the Israelite response to a problem like this. The problem is one that no human resources can meet. Look at verse 14. What is the difference? There's a vast difference between how Daniel and his friends respond to this impossible problem and how the magicians, the magicians said, this can't be done. No, nothing, yeah, just give up. God, or Nebuchadnezzar, you're being unreasonable. Why is Daniel, why are Daniel and his friends different? Is it because their character is different? Is it because they're just more noble 
men than the magicians? What makes the difference? They, they were just born differently. Daniel just had a, a special gene in him that was, that was um, godly. <laughs> the only difference, brothers and sisters, is faith. That's the only difference. And not just faith in the sense of Daniel worked up the faith. The only difference is the object of faith. The object of Daniel and his friend's faith was the God of heaven. The God of Israel. The God of his fathers. The God who he has heard about and learned about in history. The God of his people. Yahweh. And because he is the object of their faith, Daniel does not despair when he hears the king requiring some impossible thing to be done. Daniel has hope. And so we see in verse 14 to 16, Daniel goes into the king and says, give me just a little bit of time and I'll give you what you want. And the Nebuchadnezzar is intrigued by this, obviously. Oh, really? You're not despairing like the rest of the guys? All right, you got, you got your time. Daniel knows that not all the options have been exhausted. Verse 17 and 18. Daniel and his friends turn to solve this humanly impossible problem. They turn to God. They pray to God. They say, God, you know the answer. You know what the dark you know the dark things. You have not only wisdom, but ability. And we're turning to you to deliver us. It says in verse um, 18, they turn to the God of heaven. Joyce Baldwin says, this was a fitting title for the true God in a country where the stars were worshipped, where astral worship was practiced. And compare verse 18, they pray to the God of heaven with verse 11, where the magicians say, the gods know the answers. The the gods know the answers. But they do not dwell with men. And when you compare these two verses, you see that while it is true that God lives in the heavens where God dwells above. Well, God dwells uh, not with mortal man. He's not walking around on the earth where you can talk to him, call him up on the phone. Even though God lives above, the magicians use that as an excuse that God's not around. God's distant. God's not here. We can't know the answer from, God, from the gods. The magicians use that as an excuse Daniel and his friends knew that even though God was higher than the heavens, that God can act because God is real and God loves man. God cares about us. And that even though God dwells in the heavens, we can know God and have relationship with God and request compassion from God and God can hear our prayers and answer us. Isn't that an amazing faith that they have in God? Amazing object of faith. And so they turned to God and they were delivered and God revealed the mystery to them in a dream. Do you believe, even though we don't see God, and even though 
our Father who art in heaven, do you believe that even though you can't see God and He's in heaven, that you can talk to God? That God sees you? That God cares about you? That you can have a relationship with God? And that you don't have to say, yeah, but there are the gods, but they're just, they're just not around. They're just not going to help us. Is that your view of God? Like so many people, many people believe in God, but they don't believe that there's anything that they can get from God, talk to God, have relationship with God. This is not the biblical faith, is it? To think like that. What God wants you to know is that you can have a relationship with Him. That's what God wants all of us to know. And He wants us to come before Him with confidence, knowing that He cares for us. That's what Peter says, right? Cast your burdens on the Lord. We, we don't like to cast our burdens on each other, right? We, don't, we often say, I'm sorry for dumping all over you, right? I'm sorry for just unloading all my problems on you. And Peter says, you know, we know what God is like. He's revealed himself through Jesus Christ. He's revealed himself through his faithfulness to Israel. Like, throw all of your problems on the Lord. He, he loves you cares about you. He wants to hear from you. He wants to answer you. You can trust him. He's really acts. Got problems? Tell him to God. Look at Daniel's prayer in verse 20. Because when they receive the answer from the Lord, they thank and praise him. And can you imagine how exciting this night must have been when he knows we've got the answer. We're going into the king. We're going to tell him tomorrow what his dream is. This is exciting. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever and ever and ever in the 21st century. May the name of God be blessed. God's name, Leon Wood says, commentator, God's name stands for God himself and all that is gloriously true of him. God is a glorious and awesome God. May he be praised forever and ever, for he is worthy to be praised forever and ever. Why? There's always a for. Whenever the Bible tells us to praise God, there is always a reason. There's always a for he is. It's never just muscle it up, guys. Just praise God for no reason because it's just the thing you're supposed to do. Why does Daniel say that God is praiseworthy? For what? For wisdom and power belong to him. You see, just the fact that God is full of wisdom and power makes him praiseworthy. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. Romans chapter 1 says, All of nature around us testifies of the wisdom and of the power of God. And for that reason alone, he is praiseworthy. Do you agree with that? Do you think God is praiseworthy because of the wisdom and the power that he has that is manifested in creation? I mean, do you need a reason to praise God after you've seen that? Do you need a further reason, I should say? Now, there are further reasons. There's many. But Romans chapter 1 says, men are guilty, men are going to be destroyed, because though they know God, they do not give him glory and thanks. They do not praise God, even though his wisdom and his power is evident God is praiseworthy. If anyone was praiseworthy, he is. But here, of course, Daniel's not just referring 
to the wisdom and power of God that's manifested in creation, but that's manifested in his revealing this mystery. That is, God knows Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and God gave me Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He's, he knows it, and he acted. He knows it, and he's delivered me. He has ability. He not only is the creator, but he is the sovereign Lord. He did not just create the world, and we can see his wisdom and power, and then he left and created other worlds and went away. He created the world, he's, he's powerful, he's wise, but he's also sovereign, he's in control of this world, he acts in this world. We can know his wisdom and power at deeper levels also. His power is praised in verse 21. Here's an aspect of his power and his sovereign control over earth. It is God who changes the times and the epochs and he removes kings and establishes kings. Now, we haven't heard what Nebuchadnezzar's dream is yet, but this gives us a little window into what that dream is because what Nebuchadnezzar saw, as we're going to see, is the rise and fall of certain nations. And so now Daniel is reflecting upon the wisdom and the power of God in his sovereignty over the nations and causing nations to rise and fall. So a little window into that dream. But he also says... God gives wisdom to men. God gives wisdom to the wise. That doesn't mean God helps those who help themselves. That doesn't mean those who are wise on their own, God looks at them and says, oh, you're wise, let me give you some wisdom. What he means there is, if anyone is wise, it's because God has given them wisdom. He gives wisdom to the wise, meaning he gives the wise man his wisdom. Do you give God thanks for that? If you have any wisdom... What does that say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? It says, we speak a wisdom that none of the world knows. The wisdom of God, which is Christ. And we speak this because we're so smart. We Christians know the mind of Christ and have the wisdom of God because we're just, we got that godly gene, right? We just happen to be smarter than everybody else. No, because God has revealed it unto us by his Spirit. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2. So if you know Christ, if you know the gospel, if you have the wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified, then brothers and sisters like Daniel, let us give thanks to God for giving us the wisdom and revealing to us the dark things. Because darkness is light to God, he says in verse 22. God reveals profound and hidden things and knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. This is a statement of God's knowledge of all things. There's nothing that God doesn't know and dark things that human beings cannot know, God knows. In Psalm 139, David is saying, if I were to go to hell, if I were to make my bed in the the grave, God would be there. If I were to ascend to the heavens, God would be there. If I were to go to the farthest end of the ocean, God would be there. If I were to hide in the darkness, God would be there because the darkness is even light to God, David says in 139. Isn't that amazing? We turn all the lights off and where are we? I can't see. The darkness is light to God. You cannot turn the lights off on God. You can't go to heaven and say, what's this switch do? And all of a sudden everything's dark and God himself is like, who turned the light off? Turn it back on. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) You can't, you can't turn the, imagine a being that the lights can never go off on him. Everything is light to God. And even when all men are in darkness, he sees.
Look at verse 23. Daniel knows exactly who he is praying to and exactly who has answered his prayer. To you, he says, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Not a novel God. He didn't come to Babylon and get impressed by Babylon and Babylon's gods. They changed his name. They took his God's vessels into the other God's house. By all appearances, God wasn't great. His God was defeated. And he says, no, I'm not impressed by these new gods. I know the word of God. Daniel looks backwards to the word. Daniel looks back to the God of his fathers, not forward to the God of Babel, the gods of Babylon. It was to the God of his fathers that he turned, and it was the God of his fathers who answered him, because the God of his fathers is in control. And so Daniel's prayer here changes from the objective to the experiential. In the beginning of his prayer, he's extolling God for who he is objectively, and now he's, in verse 23, turning to what he himself has experienced from God. I thank and praise you, God of my fathers, for you have given me wisdom and power. So before he was saying objectively, God, wisdom and power belong to you, but now you have given me wisdom and power. Uh, I've experienced who I knew you are, who I knew you were. I've experienced you. And we too can believe in God, who he is, and experience him for ourselves. Can you today also thank and praise God for who he is and for what he's done for you personally? It's a beautiful prayer. In verse 24, we have the conclusion of the problem. No human solution, no pagan solution, but the solution was found in God. And so in verse 24, Daniel goes to Arioch and says, take me to the king, don't destroy the wise men, I will declare the interpretation to the king. Now, lastly, I'd like to apply this to the gospel of Christ what we've been examining here about problem, human solution, and God solution. You see, when we look at the gospel, we can say we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. The problem is that God requires righteousness in order for us to live, in order for us to exist before God, to dwell in His presence, to have eternal life. God requires righteousness. True or false? God requires righteousness. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and of the Pharisees, the guys you think are righteous, you will in no way enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if you today have any hope that you're going to enter the kingdom of God and live eternally and not be destroyed, you must believe that you have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, greater than 
the best guys that the world can point to. We have a problem. God requires righteousness. And his commandment is firm. And there's only one decree if you're not. If you are not righteous, then the Bible tells us that you will perish eternally. You will spend eternity in what Jesus says, hellfire, what John says, the lake of fire, what Isaiah says, a place of worms and fire. That's what you're going to get. You're going to be torn limb from limb and your house is going to be made a rubbish heap. That's what man can do. Jesus said, don't fear what man can do. Don't even fear getting torn limb from limb and having your house made a rubbish heap. I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear God who after they tear you limb from limb and make your house a rubbish heap, he can destroy your body and your soul in hellfire and he'll do that if you're not righteous. Houston, we have a problem. God requires righteousness. And God's commandment is not tell me my dream and interpretation. God's commandment is just. And the punishment is just because we've sinned. Not because we can't tell a dream, but because we have sinned against God. All of us have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Now, the Bible also tells us that you and I cannot solve this problem. This is one of those problems that there is no human ingenuity that can get you out of it. This is not one of those Apollo 13 problems. So, Houston, we have a problem. God requires righteousness. looks bad. Well, I know it looks bad, but here's what you can do. Follow this procedure, do all these things, and you can save yourself. You can make it. This is one of those problems, brothers and sisters, that it is humanly impossible for you to solve. God requires righteousness. If you don't have righteousness, you'll go to hell and there's nothing that you can do to solve it. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. By the doing of the law, there shall no flesh be justified or righteous in God's sight. So you need to be righteous? Well, by doing the commandments, by cleaning your life up, by making yourself as good as you can possibly be, you will not be righteous in the sight of God. You will fall short of the glory of God. You do fall short of the glory of God because what God requires is perfection. What God requires is total moral perfection. What does that look like? We often throw that word around. Total moral perfection means you never sin. You never do anything that's wrong. Whenever your conscience tells you not to do something, you don't. Whenever your conscience tells you to do something, you do it. Always. How many of you are like that? How many of you always listen to your conscience? Always. Never miss a beat. Well, if you don't, you're not righteous. There's nothing that we can do. This problem requires a supernatural solution. Now, if you do not know God, if you do not know the God of Israel the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you despair at this point and you're like the pagan priests who say, well, God, that's not fair. No one can do it. Oh, God, come on. That's not right. And God says, you're done. You have nothing but despair at this point or you can take some comfort temporarily in lies until you die and find out the truth. But here's the good news. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of Christ. 
that there is a God in heaven who loves you very much. He loves you even though you're a sinner. He loves you even though you're unrighteous. He loves you even though you're not listening to the conscience that he's given you and you're really disgusting and you deserve hell. He loves you. And he gave his son to save you. He provided the supernatural solution through Jesus Christ. That's because he loves you. You didn't have to do that. And it's a supernatural solution. It's not something that humans have solved. Because there's nothing that we can do. And here's what that supernatural solution is. We are unrighteous and sinful and the law condemns us and we deserve death. And God did something so surprising. Came into the world. Put on flesh and blood. Flesh and blood. Why? So that they could be broken. Put on a body so it could be broken. Put on blood so that it could be spilled for love's sake, for you. And the Lord, when Jesus died on the cross for us, was dying not in a tragic sense that, oh, it's too bad that the Romans got the better of him or the Jews got the better of him, that he willingly gave his life. No one takes it from him. He willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice for our sins. For the Bible says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that when Jesus went to the cross, that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of all of us. Isn't that amazing? There's no other way we can be saved. How can you get your sins off of you? You can't. And in an act of nothing but love, the Lord lays upon him the iniquity of all of us. The iniquity of, put your name in the blank, your iniquity taken off of you supernaturally, put upon Christ, and he dies for them, and he drinks that cup that is the wrath of God, and he satisfies the justice of God, and he, in a supernatural way, provides salvation. Through his death, through his blood, he has the power to save everyone now who puts their faith in him. As a gift now. It's, not, it's, no, it's no longer... Keep commandments, stop sinning, do the right things. You need to work, you need to get it right, you need to do the right rituals, you need to uh, put in the effort here. It's now a totally free gift if you just simply trust in God. Trust in God. Trust in the supernatural power of God through Jesus Christ that he has promised to you and to me. That's the Israelite response. That's the Daniel response. When everything looks hopeless humanly, I've got a promise from God. I've got a big God who has power and love and cares for me. And I'm going to trust in Him. And the Bible says, whoever trusts in Him will not be ashamed. Will not ever be ashamed like those foolish people who trust in these pagan false gods that are nothing. You will not be ashamed. It's wonderful, isn't it? There are problems that cannot be solved by man and only by God. And praise God, may we, together with Daniel, brothers and sisters, in the 21st century, 
Not look to the novel ideas of man, but look to the God of our fathers. If we put our trust in Christ, we can say that. Look to Yahweh, the living and the true God, who has wisdom and power and might to save, and give him praise forever and ever and ever. Is that in your heart? May his name be blessed both now and always through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name. Unlike all false gods who have come and gone and whom men have played around with but have never really trusted in because they're not real. You are our rock and you live forever. And you are praised from the rising of the sun to its setting every day. You've always been and you always will be. And we praise you today, Lord, for solving our problem that concerned us so seriously and that we had no solution for. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the righteousness that we have through faith in him that is not our own. We thank you for the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we thank you for revealing this to us through your Spirit, these dark things that, Lord, in our foolishness and sin, we would never have known. Thank you. May we praise you every day and not forget these things. Thank you for your word. May we reflect on and meditate on and dwell upon your word every day, more and more, so that we, like Daniel, may have a big object of faith that gives us hope in every crisis that we may face. Thank you for this time in your word, Lord. Again, we praise you through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.